0: There were eight of us, eight Republican political consultants, who turned the cannon inside the ship and said, we think we've got the skill sets to beat this guy. And we think we we know how to do it, and we think that we can, as Republicans who've done campaigns at the highest levels, fight Republicans the way they need to be fought. Hello,
1: this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Mike Madrid, is a contrarian Republican consultant and expert in the Hispanic vote, who is a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, He's an anti-Trump Republican. His firm is called Grassroots Lab. Mike has a lot to say about how the Democratic and Republican parties are changing and why an increasing number of people in the Hispanic working class, like the white working class, are attracted to Trump and the Republican party. He has a podcast also with the Democratic consultant, Chuck Rocha, called The Latino Vote, where they discuss such things at length. Mike was a very interesting guest, and I hope you will listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Mike Madrid of Grassroots Lab.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. My name is Mike Madrid. I'm a California-based Republican political consultant. I have an interest and expertise over 30 years of working with Latino voters, one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project, and yeah, all-around good guy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Self-testified. So yeah, according to me, I'm a pretty good guy. (laughs) I'm not sure I would say that about myself, but others might. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Where'd you grow up? Did you grow up in California?
0: Yeah, I did. I, I'm a Californian. I'm a, from Southern California, which is an important distinction. I'm actually from Ventura County, which is the northernmost county in Southern California, right there above Los Angeles. Grew up in a Mexican-American household, a uh, good family of Democrats, the people that were very politically aware, although not politically involved. And I grew up in a community, a little small agricultural community called Moore Park. The town was about 2,000 people when my folks moved there in the very early 70s. And by the time I graduated from high school, it was a town of about 38,000. So it was dramatic growth that happened over that time period. And you can see both the Reagan Library from my front house and the the fields where, where the farm workers work and pick crops. And I think that that balance really drove my upbringing, my worldview, and my understanding of both, both distinct worlds and how I thought they could be brought together.
1: If your parents were... Good Democrats, and you ended up as a Republican political consultant. What was the path from one party to the other? That's a
0: really good question. Look, I grew up um, in a Catholic home that was keenly focused on social justice. And, and waking up every day, the only mandate I had as a young boy, as soon as I could see up over the bathroom sink and into the mirror, was when I see myself for the first time every day is to immediately ask myself, what am I doing for the least among us? What am I doing for the poor? And that was really my route to political involvement. And I think a lot of people find it odd, especially Democrats find it odd that I chose the Republican Party, but it seemed very natural to me. I started to come to an understanding that my community, my Latino community, there were some cultural aspects, cultural reasons why we were not um, finding the economic mobility, climbing the economic ladder as much as other groups were. And I ultimately believed that true empowerment would come from self-determination. And I still very firmly believe that, by the way. Um and a lot of lot of thinkers going back to you know w. e. B. Du Bois and black thinkers have have had that have had similar, um, understandings of, of community empowerment. And to me, that was very, very clearly the Republican Party. And I'm not gonna suggest that were not very heated dinner conversations, <laughs> because there were. Um, and my father specifically, who was actually much more conservative than I was, both socially and economically, was a, was just a diehard Democrat, voted for, for Mondale in 84, and uh, ultimately came around later in his life and was able to leave the Democratic Party before he passed. Um, but, you know, the, the party now has become so, so different than what it was in the eighties when I was coming of age with the understanding of what conservatism was. Um, it's really been an adventure in understanding that political parties are simply vehicles. They're tools. There's no one party, which is instinctively, uh, definitively naturally more virtuous than the other. They're simply vessels. And, um, my conservative views have not changed, but the Republican Party has absolutely changed.
1: I mean, I kind of think of the parties as two dancers. They're sort of like circling each other. They switch where they stand on certain things, like react to each other and and sort of move one foot forward, one foot back, and change over time, right? I mean, the the Republican Party of Lincoln or Goldwater or Reagan is very different than the one of Trump. And each of those are different from each other. And so also the Democratic Party. I think what you mean with vehicles is like an office holder just chooses a party, but they they run sort of as a political entrepreneur in their own right, taking the positions that they want and sort of in dialogue with the bigger forces that are organizing thought in each side.
0: Yeah, I think that's largely right. And I think that, you know, over time, that two party balance where the, the parties have had the capacity to to consume or subsume or assume other ideas has historically created a centrism innate in both parties, which has been very stabilizing. You know, we, we are the oldest democracy in the world here in the United States, and the two party system has lasted effectively since the end of the Civil War. And there's a reason for that. And it's created this remarkable stability. And I think the analogy of dancing partners is very good. It's important as citizens of the republic, if you will, to understand that. These are not religions. These are not um, infallible things. They're human institutions. And they have both changed remarkably over their existence. In fact, I would argue entirely the fact that we're sitting here in 2022, anybody that's over 45 years old that would think that the Republican Party would be pro-Russia and the Democrats would be the hawks you know, going in and asking for more military involvement in Ukraine understands how different these parties are than they were in the 80s and 90s. While it's been a stabilizing force, I think we are in a unique period of time where where both parties are actually moving moving further away from each other rather than to the center. I think there's a couple of very profound reasons why that's happening, but um, but but it is, and it is unique in the American experience.
1: You went down to Georgetown for college, if I understand I correctly. Yeah. How, how much did that shape you? God, that's a
0: great question. You know, again, I grew up in a, in a small agricultural community that was becoming very suburban. My father went to night school to get his college degree. I was never pushed to go to college at all. And in fact, I graduated from high school with a 2.1 grade point average. I barely got out of school. I was very smart. I was just not challenged and didn't find much interest in it. And it took me a few years of bouncing around and going back to a community college system in California, getting my act together, and then ultimately four or five years later transferring to Georgetown where I kind of have found my passion. I needed to grow up a little bit. And I was able to do that. Georgetown made me realize a few things. The first is there was an America that I could never be a part of, an America that no matter how rich or how powerful, uh, how influential I became, they're very there is very much a caste system in America. There is a uh, level of society in American um, in, in America where if you are not born into it, then you are not ever going to be a part of it. And that was very eye-opening. It shattered a lot of of the myth that I had about America and the Horatio Alger story. It was very good for me, I think, to get it at that age. But it also questioned my conservative beliefs about us being a meritocracy because, well, I think it's always good to, to be as good as you can be and be the best person that you are. It is a false notion that that alone can get you to where you want you to go in America. There are obviously exceptions, but they are exceptions. They are not. They are not the rule. And it, I, I needed to kind of be slapped in the face as a young person. That idealism needed to be shaken a little bit um, because it makes me, it made me less ideological. It made me. It made me much more um, practical about the world that I was operating in, and more understanding that there were different ways in which people operate in the world. And, and so, you know, I, I studied with some of the best professors on the planet in the foreign, school of foreign service there. Um, the, the, the caliber of the student was second to none. These were clearly going to be leaders of this generation. Um, and they have proven to be. It was the best of times, worst of times. And I think maybe college should be like that for young people. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful. I, I knew immediately I needed to come back to California I knew that. I I thought when I went there, I would stay in Washington, D.C. and practice politics in the nation's capital or on the East Coast. And I knew immediately that I was not going to be staying in D.C.
1: for very long. It sounds like there was some kind of crowd that you felt alienated from. I'm certain I would have felt the same way coming from sort of just an academic family and not uh, fancy people. Who was that? And um, Were you alienated because of politics? Background or like being Mexican American? Were you alienated because these people looked down on you or you felt that way? Or what was that? That's a very observant
0: question, and that's exactly the right word alienation. And in fact, what I began at Georgetown because of that experience was a year long senior thesis on Latino politicization. My political professional career actually began. Uh, at Lowinger Library there on on the campus at Georgetown, addressing just that question. It, you're asking just such a good question, which is essentially this, are Latinos feeling alienated from American society or oppressed? Because so oftentimes oppression is the political narrative that has been driven by Latino politicians and Latino political elites. And I've never felt oppressed, but I have absolutely felt alienated. And on campus, being on the East Coast, Going from a community in a state which was, you know, had strong Hispanic uh, overtones and there was a seamlessness, there was no, no big deal about being a, a Mexican-American, either everybody was or was married to one or knew of them. I was going to Georgetown back in D.C., and for the first time, I was meeting kids who had never met anybody of Mexican descent, and, and, and it's a very wealthy, uh, very white, very privileged community I don't you know take that from anybody that's just the way the world works but again that alienation it wasn't any an individual experience it was it was more kind of this overwhelming understanding that I was not of this world and for the first time I felt like I was not of my own country um, which was really really um, a, a a shaking, um, experience. It shook me to my core um, because everything that I had taken there as, as the framework for which I was guiding my life was proving essentially untrue. And it was really tested. One of two things was going to happen. Either I was going to come back more committed to the conservative ideals and come to an understanding of that, or I would forsake it and learn an entirely uh, different philosophy and belief system to navigate through my adult life. I believe I came back with a stronger commitment to those ideals, but with a very nuanced understanding that has really guided my professional career. And that is this, that if we understand that Latinos are are alienated and that alienation is, is manifesting politically as oppression, then there's a way that we can uniquely evolve politically to be helpful to this broader society, this broader community as we become a majority of the people or as America becomes a non-white majority? And that question was very important to me. And I don't want to go too far down this road, but, but this is where, where I was at as, a, as an undergrad in, at Georgetown. M- my concern was in looking as a young man in my early 20s projecting out that uh, America by the end of my lifetime would be a non-white majority country. And it would be largely a plurality of people of Hispanic Latino descent that had really no historical background of Western European ideas and thoughts. Can America still be America if it's a non-white European majority country? Can we still hold on to these ideals of self-governance and, and individualism as a, as a cultural anchor and and a commitment to freedoms perhaps above all else? When Mexican Americans, of course, that's not even in the that's not in the vernacular. That's just not a, of an issue of a concern. And what what does that mean? And that question has always perplexed me. And what's so exciting about what I do for me, anyway? I'm probably the only person in the world that's excited about it. But is I get to watch it unfold. I literally was be going to be able to watch that question be answered during my lifetime. And so that's what I have focused most of my career and work on. And every year it gets closer to answering it. And it's kind of an interesting way to look at life is every year of my life, the, the questions that I was asking as a young man get answered more and more. And I get to see where I was right and see where I was wrong.
1: It sounds like that conservatism that you had embraced before college structured where you landed on that alienation versus oppression disjunction. And I, th- I feel like that part of the way the political world communicates to the Hispanic audience right now is, is around the question of the celebration of hard work versus uh, a lot of times Republicans want to associate Democrats with like giving something for free versus you have to earn it. And, and, and in my view, The Democratic Party has both a celebration of hard work and an interest in pulling up people who maybe aren't able to, but that they're not very good at communicating that view in all regards. And then the Republican Party uh, has its own snarls around that question also. What are your thoughts in that sort of area of sort of Hispanics, hard work and politics? Again, a, another great question,
0: and, and both parties do. You framed it correctly. Also, both parties have kind of this positive component that work, but they also have these negatives. We can debate how much or not, but I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Look, I I believe that cultures develop certain um, characteristics um, as survival mechanisms as a, as a people. We we learn individually. Uh, to develop survival mechanisms as as unique individual organisms and human beings, but we also do that as ethnic tribes and as racial groups and as cultural groups and as as nation states. One of the great cultural characteristics and attributes we have as Latinos, hispanics as, is as is as hard workers. We are a working class people. There is a reason why we um, are rapidly filling the blue collar working class, segment of American society today. As white, blue-collar workers are dropping off, those roles in construction and manufacturing and energy, you know, trades are are rapidly being filled by non-college-educated, you know, Hispanic workers. It's something that I have struggled with because we have been acculturated to think and believe that a college degree is a sign of success, and and it largely is, and it's certainly a sign of economic mobility. While we talk a lot in my community, in the Latino community, about education being so important, its importance is very distinct from other ethnicities and races like the Asian Pacific Islander community, right? And we, we can you know, talk about the nuances between those two, for example, but... Um, I I do believe that what is happening in in America right now is the divide between those who have a college degree and those who do not are the greatest politically than we have ever been in the history of this country. And the Democratic Party is rapidly consolidating college-educated voters, specifically white voters, because whites overwhelmingly have the college degrees in this country, And the Republicans are rapidly consolidating non-college-educated voters, whites, again too, which dominate the electorate, but increasingly Hispanics, which drives this rightward shift that we've been seeing that started in the Trump era and has somewhat continued. It's really a function of class as much as it's a function of race or ethnicity. There are clearly overlaps and there are correlations in this country, very clear. But the education divide is the largest political divide, and it's getting wider. and it's why there's two cultures: the culture of people in America with a college degree is very, very different than the culture of people without a college degree. And it's why you hear an entirely different set of news on Fox News, which isn't really news, by the way, and what you hear on, on you know, a CNN or an MSNBC, which is a distinct set of news as well. So we're really living together, but we're living in very separate worlds. And Hispanics are very much um, kind of caught in the middle, which is both problematic um, in terms of determining what a Latino voter is, because in many ways, if you look at it objectively, there's not a whole lot of difference between the average Latino and the average white voter. Um, And it's becoming less and less differentiated all of the time. But at the same time, you know, the divides that do exist are are very much correlate to these cultural battles, this very hot cultural war that we as a country are in the middle of. And so, again, it's just been kind of a fascinating exercise to watch all of this unfold.
1: You went to the California Republican Party as a political director after college? I did. Tell me about that experience.
0: It was actually the best job I think I've ever had. I mean, I was I was very young. I was 26 years old. And I had spent so many years at Georgetown studying Latino voters. I was one of few people nationally in either party that had actually done the level of work that I had done. And California was just beginning this demographic transformation, which the Republicans were handling extraordinarily poorly. It's very comparable to what the national Republicans were doing in 2016, 2018, and even now. The demographic transformation in California was really just hitting a tipping point, and it started to make a lot of the, these racial wedge issues very front and center. And so they find this Mexican-American Republican kid who had this deep understanding of the Latino vote, and and it opened up opportunities for me to kind of take a higher role and a more prominence in the party. But I I don't think they really fully understood what they were getting because I was extremely critical of the party from that bully pulpit as well. There was this this 26-year-old kid saying, you know, you can't be talking about immigrants like this. And I would openly say there is this racist, nativist element in the party that needs to be removed and the party leaders were kind of like horrified. But at the same time, they knew that it was true. And even worse, they couldn't remove me because if they did, that would have signaled even bigger problems. So I've, in many ways, I've kind of been this sort of truth teller, at least from my perspective, my entire career, largely because I'm much more interested in the larger kind of tectonic demographic shifts that are happening in politics than I am about John beating Sally in this primary with this ideological issue or not, I don't mean to dismiss that. That's an important part of it. But I've never really been a partisan warrior. I've really been much more of an advocate for, I think, for the Latino community, but also for the broader society and making sure that both sides go through this transition seamlessly. We we, got to remember here, um, by the end of our lifetimes, America will be a non-white majority country. That has never happened before. We have never gone through this type of of a demographic transformation where a plurality of people will be from a non-European ancestry. There have been different ethnicities, of course, that we've struggled with at Ellis Island at the turn of the last century with Greeks, Jews, Poles, Italians, and people from all corners, largely from Europe coming. And, and, And I don't mean to dismiss that. Those were very tumultuous times also. But the vast majority of people were coming from a frame of reference of a white European framework, which is at least similar. This is very distinct. This is very different. And it's going to have long-term impacts on our democracy, on our society, on our economy, and in the way that we view ourselves as Americans in the world.
1: I guess that time you were in the political directorship there was post-Prop 187, Pete Wilson still governor. Is that right? Yeah. And, it and just so passed it right. Politically, that may have had long-term consequences for the Republican Party in making it the minority party in the state for sure. After, I mean, it, did you see that at the time?
0: Yes, and I was saying it at the time publicly <laughs> from from the title of being the Republican director. the political director of the Republican Party. Like I said, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about my work with the Lincoln Project, but my my work as a critic of my party has been there from the beginning, like literally from my first job in the highest profile position in the party as the spokesperson for the party, the political director of the party. I was very critical of my party in the direction that it was going in. This is not new to me, but... I was there because I had an understanding of what was going to be happening, and I was probably more interested in the bigger picture than I was in the day-to-day tactics of what the party was supposed to be engaged in. And and that came with pluses and minuses. The, the pluses were, I think, people started to respect my work on both sides of the aisle, incidentally. Uh, Latino politicians would call me and say, like, who are you? What, what you're saying is right, but you're saying it from the wrong place. And then I would get Republicans calling and saying, who are you? <laughs> what you're saying is right, but you're saying it from the wrong place. This is not the arena for that type of activity. And I, I never saw it that way. I, I think that there's something about you know truth as we see it and the, the need for it to be told, especially in politics. And so Pete Wilson gave me opportunities that no politician has. And, and I consider Pete Wilson a friend to this day. Which is horrifying to a lot of people. The truth of the matter is, Pete's record in its entirety is extraordinarily pro-Hispanic, pro-Latino. People forget all of the work that he did uh, for the undocumented, for farm workers, um, and his whole career. I mean, he was the main jockey in the United States Senate for the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. That was Pete's bill, and and so, and that was the last time we got immigration reform done. Which provided amnesty for millions of Mexican Americans. Like there's, there's arguably no senator that has done more for people, certainly of Mexican descent or Latinos, in terms of of, of of bringing them to the the roles of citizenship, than Senator Wilson and and President Reagan, of course. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the, the negative effects of what 187 did or his legacy. And I, I've said that to him.
1: How does he see it? Does he? He hasn't that. changed. Yeah. No,
0: he hasn't changed. And I thought he would. Our 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 last dustup was actually kind of interesting because I was working with the Lincoln Project and I was very anti-Trump, and Pete endorsed Trump late into the uh, cycle. And a bunch of reporters called and said, "Hey, you know, Governor Wilson just came out and endorsed Pete Wilson. What would you happen? What would you say to him?" And I said, "I would tell Pete I'm very disappointed in him." And then they called the governor and they said, you know, Mike Madrid said that he's very disappointed in you. And his response was, well, I'm very disappointed in Mike, <laughs> which, is a, which is a great Pete Wilson response. You know, it's, he, he is a man who he is. And I respect and admire the hell out of it. And I, I look, a lot of people think that it's it's horrible that I, you know, talked to the devil or whatever. I don't think that at all. I, I do think Pete made a mistake and I think that he has continued along, but who among us hasn't? And when you view his his career in totality, there are very few people that can hold the candle to Pete Wilson's advocacy for the Latino community. Now, the victors tell the story, right? And and his whole story, his whole legacy will not be as a pro-Latino, you know, senator because of 187 and because of, of what he was doing in part as a as a governor. But history objectively, once, once we're all long gone and people look back, Um, will, I think, have a very different view of Pete Wilson, the politician, and what he advocated for. It's actually a really interesting story.
1: I think it's a very rare young man or woman who, in their mid-20s, is capable of standing up for their own views when they are askew with big people that are around them. It takes a certain amount of courage or orneriness or conviction I'm not sure what the brew is. How do you explain that in yourself? You know,
0: that's another, you're, you're really good at this. I would really ascribe it to that, that Catholic upbringing. And I'm sure that people of all faiths have experienced this. But again, for me, when, when my my mother would say, you know, whenever you see yourself the first time in the morning in the mirror, you ask yourself what you're going to be doing to fight, at least among us today. I, I, I have a very strong commitment to principle And I say that with a lot of caution because I'm as broken and as as failed a human being as as, as all of us are. But I, I do know what's right and wrong. And I think most of us know what is right and what is wrong. And even as a young man, I wasn't trying to moralize. It's just I could not live any other way. And I see in this business, so much of this is just nuance and people compromising who they are to get where they want to go. And not realizing that by the time they get to where they want to be, they're an entirely different human being. Um, and there's so much money in this business that it's sad to see people treating politics like a business. And I never understood that. To me, it was more of a calling uh, uh, than it was a, a way to, to, to make a ton of money or to or to accumulate a lot of power. I I viewed it as a way to make a change. I I, I viewed it... As a noble calling, I'm not sure that I do anymore. As an older man, only because I, I see so few people doing the right thing, I, and 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 maybe that's oversimplifying it a little bit. But to me, there are a lot of common areas where just human being a human being tells you what is right and what is wrong, and. And and maybe I'm 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 Pollyannish about that still. I, I hope I am. I hope I still have that Pollyannish naivete. Um, and I take that to my grave because that that's what drives that principle. And so yeah, I think a lot of people were going saying, wow, you're really courageous. To me, it was just kind of commonsensical. Every time that I have been challenged in my career to do the quote unquote the right thing or stand up and be a critic of of racism. Or, or anti-immigrant fervor, um, I, I think I've, I've done the the right thing. And again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I have any more courage than anybody else, although it would appear that I kind of do, I guess. It's just the way that I'm wired. And I have just such a passionate interest about coming to understand these things that when I'm confronted with them, I immediately say, no, no, that's that's not right. That's not what's happening. That's not what's going on. And, and the irony of it all is most people I think would assume that it would end my career actually being honest and forthright and, and courageous has opened up far more opportunities than I ever would have had if I had just shut up and, and, and played the game and continued to enable really bad things.
1: Tell me about that part of your career that's after the Republican party and before you start grassroots lab.
0: What happened was I ended up working um, for the first Hispanic Republican minority leader in the state legislature. It's when I moved from Southern California to Sacramento, where I am now. And I uh, got married and had had children and in many ways kind of took a long hiatus out of partisan politics. Again, I was never much of a partisan warrior, although I, I'm still a Republican. But I, I was raising kids. And so I, I, I started a firm. I've enjoyed the craft of political consulting. It's my trade. It's my profession. It's my identity. It's what I do. I think it's a profession that gets a bad rap for a good reason. There are a lot of bad actors, and there's a lot of bad things that happen in politics. But I think that there are good good things uh, and good actors. And my firm, Grassroots Lab, was really focused um, between really the working for the state party and forming that company on working on – Probably less than sexy issues in politics, public affairs type work. I was working doing a lot of local government work, advocating on behalf of cities to kind of get secure funding uh, to, to, to improve quality of life issues, uh, working on police and fire issues, but all the while still continuing my work in the Latino space and continuing to work on issues that were affecting the community.
1: How was that done as a company? Well, I've got a great business
0: partner. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a partner in, in this firm. Um, I'm up in Sacramento. My partner, Rob Karinke, is down in uh, Long Beach. He runs our Long Beach shop. And he's been uh, just an amazing person to do business with. We've been around for all, about 15 years now, which is very long in the political consulting world. I and mean, our employee base tends to be down in Long Beach. About a third of our businesses' campaigns, still we still like to do them. Um, they're tough, and we swear them off you know, every election cycle, but we always come back and do them again. About a third is public affairs work, and about a third is working on kind of issues and topics that we're just interested in doing, which kind of keeps us very fresh and very focused and, frankly, inspired to do what we love to do. I, I, to me, politics is, is a passion project. If I wanted to just go make money, I would be doing something different. Um, But to me, again, it started out as a noble calling. I think I still view it that way. Unfortunately, I don't see a lot of young people entering it with that same frame of mind. I think the the profession has changed considerably in the 30 years I've been engaged with it. I've got concerns about it. Consulting practice is a unique type of business that requires hands-on experience. It requires the active involvement, engagement of the principals. And in many ways, it's been sort of constricting as an enterprise to simply go out and make money but it's allowed me to do the things that i really love to do which is actually get my hands dirty with the mechanics of campaigns
1: how big of a firm is it
0: uh the firm we have about eight employees and then myself and my partner as principals so there's about 10 of us
1: and i take it the campaigns that you work on are the republican side
0: no not necessarily my partner is actually a good democrat we will work, uh, especially now, we we have a very, very unique firm in that we are a we are the principals are a Republican and a Democrat. We will work for anybody um, where we think we can make a positive change or positive difference. So this cycle we have worked for Republicans and we are working for Democrats. And it's again, a very unique space, but uh, most people thought there's no way you can survive. like that's not a model. There's really no other firm of our size. In California, probably in, in the country that does what we do, we don't really care. We're not looking to be a bigger firm. We're looking to to do good work. And so there are instances where a Republican is the best candidate that, that we can get. And so we go in and we will help that Republican win. And there are times when um, Democrats are the best candidates and we've got the flexibility and the reputation to do that. And so we're very well respected on both sides of the aisle. Again, very unique as a firm. I I can't think of another firm anywhere in the country that, that has made this work. But it really, I think, is a sign of just a commitment to backing and working for good people, regardless of their ideological persuasion. And I think that that's probably more needed in this country at this point in time. It is
1: extraordinarily unusual, I think, to pull that off. Can you give me an example of a Democrat and a Republican who you chose to work with and why? Well, I'll give you a
0: Democrat. I worked for um, Antonio Villaraigosa when he ran for governor of California, former mayor of Los Angeles, um, who I've known since I was the the political director of the California Republican Party. Of course, back then, our relationship was very antagonistic. Uh, in fact, for for 18 of the 20 years that I've known Antonio, it has been an adversarial relationship. It has been me working against him and trying to stop what he was getting done and him kind of, you know, viewing me as this kind of annoyance, nipping at his heels and kind of kicking me away, oftentimes very publicly. We laugh about it now. But when he decided to run for governor, I, I was the first person he called and said, hey, I, I want you to run run my campaign. And I said, hey, look, I'd love to do it. But I mean, it wouldn't be in your best interest having a Republican running a Democrat's campaign in a Democratic primary because Democrats have been trained the way Republican voters have been trained to hate the other side. So you see the practical impacts of this and how, how wise it would be because I can help you navigate in a bipartisan way, but your own Democratic voters would hate the fact that you even talk to Republicans. And I think that's really hard for Democrats to understand because they see Republicans behaving that way. And it's true. They behave the exact same way. Um, which had made made the whole Lincoln Project experience very interesting, but Antonio, you know, w- was a real it was a real eye opening experience to be a, a high level. We ended up bringing in Eric J. to run the campaign, and Eric is a phenomenal political consultant. He's out of San Francisco. Uh, did a great job. I learned a lot from Eric, um, but I, I, I really learned how Democrats and Republicans are very different, and how they run and approach campaigns extremely differently it was very eye-opening as an experience. I think one of my favorite Republican politicians that I ever worked for, I'm very fortunate to have worked for him, uh, very early on was a state assemblyman by the name of now, N-A-O, Takasugi. And now, Takasugi had one of the really um, unique distinctions of being um, interned uh, as a Japanese citizen. Uh, during World War II. And he was an office holder later in life. He was in his mid-70s when I met him in my early 20s. And to be able to talk about those experiences as a Republican was really very helpful and guiding as a light, as a young Latino Republican operative of, of how he held on to his conservative beliefs despite even more significant odds than I had faced and, and what that meant. And in many ways, I still reflect on him. He's since passed away. He was actually profiled in Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation. Very quiet, very demure man, but very had a lot of integrity and was was more interested in helping people than advancing a party cause. And there's a lot of similarities I see in, in Assemblyman Takasugi and now Takasugi and... Um, especially now being able to look back 30 years later at, at what that meant, his 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 guidance has meant more to me than I, I even knew at the time.
1: You said that working on the Villaragosa campaign was eye-opening in terms of how the parties approach campaigns differently. What specifically did you mean?
0: I get asked this a lot because I, I'm one of very few people in the country that have been able to work in campaigns at the very highest levels right doing doing work with the Lincoln Project in a presidential you know effort uh, working with with Democrats largely consultants on that campaign but having done independent efforts with George W Bush's campaign in 2000 2004 running via Rago's campaign there's not a whole lot of people that have done campaigns at that high level on both sides. And there are very, very different approaches that the parties take. In a nutshell, the way I like to explain it is this. Democrats believe that they can win campaigns by solving policy problems, by coming up with the answers and solutions to policies. Republicans are just interested in winning the campaign. (laughs) They're not interested necessarily in the governance part of it. They're more focused on winning the campaign. It's why... Um, I think Democrats are so befuddled by some of the stuff they see Republicans doing that actually works. Republicans are very, very good at setting the frame of the debate and choosing the battlefield upon which the campaign is going to be fought and determined. Democrats are far more interested in coming up with a 10-point plan for infrastructure or to relieve traffic and highway congestion. And they're having very different conversations. And the conversations that Republicans have are, are much more digestible and much more easy to set a, a what we call the frame of the campaign on on winning terms. And, and Democrats genuinely believe uh, that they if they have the right policy solutions, that they'll win the campaign. And that could not be further from the truth. And it's very hard to move candidates and donors especially. Working with Democratic donors has been very difficult. Because they all they all have their pet issues. The donors will say, Democratic donors will be like, How do we talk about climate change in the middle of da da da? da? Or how do we talk about, you know, whatever their, their pet issue is? The Republican donor is very different. When you sit down and talk to the Republican donors, before they write you a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand million dollar check, they ask one question: how are you gonna win? How are you gonna win? So rather than you know, Democratic donors trying to talk about advancing a policy agenda. The Republican donors and uh, are just more interested in, in how we're going to win, and as a result, the consultants behave differently, and they approach campaigns very differently. I will say that I think that there are times where that advantages the Democrats, but not very often. Bill Clinton, for example, Bill Clinton was extraordinarily adept at being a policy wonk, but understanding the, the, the political framework within which to win very different than a Donald Trump running against Hillary Clinton, where, you know, there was this dismissiveness from Hillary's people going, I can't believe we're running against this guy. I can't believe we're running against this guy. And at the same time, he was actually, you know, doing what he needed to do to win. I
1: kind of buy that. I also know that with like any generalization like that, you're going to find some Democrats who run in a different way and some Republicans and run a different way. And I've heard other people say, Similar things, yeah.
0: James Carville, for example, is I think the Democrats' best weapon. I think he's very, very good um, because he understands that it's a fight. And not that Democrat consultants don't understand that, but he understands, and maybe it's because he's from the South and he was beating, you know, had to run against Republicans so often and saw how they fight in the Deep South, that he brings a street fighter attitude to the race. Um, And I think Carville is very, very talented, very very different than than what you saw with biden's folks or with even with hillary's folks there were different animals i I respect them i work a lot very closely with democratic consultants but um i do know that the nature of the way we fight is very different
1: you were a co-founder of the lincoln project and you've referenced it a few times Um, tell me about the founding story for that organization and how that came together from your perspective
0: yeah, the origin story of of the Lincoln Project, I think, is is really interesting. We, we launched officially in, in November of, of 2019, just as the first impeachment hearing was heating up. The, the way I was engaged with it was Reed Galen, who's a longtime political operative. He's the son of, of a very famous Republican operative named Rich Galen. We had called a few times. I had been extremely outspoken for during the Trump administration for the three years of the Trump administration, a very loud public critic of his in California. I knew Steve Schmidt. I worked with Steve back in 1998 when he was an advanced man for Matt Fong. And I was the political director of the party. I had known of Rick Wilson. I knew of George Conway. You know, there were eight of us. Um, we all knew of each other. Uh, uh, some of us had worked together before. I, I had never worked uh, in a formal capacity with with any of them, but I knew of most of them. Um, I got a call from from Reed. Um, basically, we went back and forth, and he said, "Look, there's we're, some of us are going to jump. We know that the Republicans in the Senate have completely failed us. We know that they're a danger to the Republic because they're not going to impeach this guy when the evidence is overwhelming that what he did was illegal." If we don't do something, we don't see the Democrats fighting the way that they need to fight this guy in order to win. Um, we also need somebody who's going to be kind of unshakable because the the pushback is going to be extremely significant. They're going to come after you personally. They're going to come after your family. They're going to come after your business. We know that you've been you know public for some time, and that you know you've already been getting those attacks. So. The last thing we need is somebody to join and then bail on us, you know, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months when the, when things get hot. So what do you think? And I said, yeah, I'm in. Right away, I said, I'm in. And so there were eight of us, eight Republican political consultants who turned the cannon inside the ship and said, w- we think we've got the skill sets to beat this guy. And we think we we know how to do it. And we think that we can, as Republicans who've done campaigns at the highest levels, fight Republicans the way they need to be fought. So it launched. It launched with with an editorial um, signed by four of us at the time. It was George Conway, Rick Wilson, John Weaver, and Steve Schmidt. The four of them signed off. And then uh, it immediately became a big, you know, deal. We we had no idea it was going to get as big as it got. I mean, it, it got enormous. It became, you know, anytime a political action committee becomes a part of popular culture, you've really tapped into something very, very unique. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger every day. You know, there was a lot of reasons why. Kudos to the Rick Wilsons on the team. I mean, the, Rick was doing his his best work of his career. The creative that was coming out was phenomenal. The, the ads that were coming out. But we also we had a lot working in our advantage, too. We had a president who was giving us material every day. And then we had the pandemic. And people don't talk enough about that. The pandemic really, uh, in many ways, took the Lincoln Project from from a high level to to stratospheric levels because everybody was at home uh, there was a daily press conference with the president giving us material and everybody was focused the whole country was focused on what what the president's response and reactions were going to be and then eventually the whole country was looking for what the Lincoln project was going to say about it you know and we were we were turning stuff out so quickly and with such good content that we would immediately, you know, go viral within an hour of the president's speech. It was a unique experience, but in many ways I do believe we redefined the modern political campaign in a way that campaigns are going to have to be run with video and video content. It was the most successful pack in American history. You know, we raised $100 million, most of it from, from small donors, less than 100 bucks. At least half the country was with us. Uh, the half was watching us because they hated us. But but that was the origin story. That's how we began. And, the, you know, it was the players that were involved. I mean, it, the Lincoln Project could not have been the Lincoln Project without George Conway being a part of it. It just couldn't have because of who he was. And, and you know, um, and Steve, Steve's profile obviously helped. But all of us brought something in the unique chemistry where it was lightning in a bottle and um, – it was an extraordinary experience. It was the best work I've done in my professional career. It was the most consequential race in the last probably 150 years for the country. And it was an honor to kind of be a part of it, to have made a difference
1: in the way the, the
0: country's history is
1: going to be written. How do you think or how do you know the Biden campaign, the Democrats at the top of the, of the political consulting world viewed Lincoln Project?
0: Well, we know because, you know, there were congratulations and stuff from them afterwards directly. Um, But we we also knew, look, we, we knew that we were going to become pariahs. We knew that the Republicans would hate us as turncoats and we knew the Democrats would never trust us. So we knew we literally knew when we started this that we were effectively lighting our own ships on fire. Like there was no coming back. All of us felt compelled for our own personal reasons. That that the price of all of that, all of the political capital, all of the credibility, all of the expertise that we had built up over decades, just as we were reaching the peak of our careers, we were going to have to sacrifice it to try to win this campaign because the stakes were that high for the country. That's where I was coming from. I genuinely believe that that's where everybody began that process from with the Lincoln Project. Um, The Biden folks, I think, were, were very Look, you have to remember when we, when the, when the Lincoln project was just really getting really, really big, um, Biden had just secured the nomination and he was broke and the pandemic had just hit the, the, the Biden campaign had no money. He had no capacity to go out around the country to raise money or to give speeches. He had to be in lockdown giving, you know, zoom rallies and zoom, zoom conference calls. The Trump campaign could have easily destroyed the Biden campaign at that moment. He was just a sitting duck. But what happened was this small pirate ship goes out with eight crazy political consultants and started taking the fight to Trump every day. And we were just this small little ship with just eight people running an offensive strategy and attacking him directly directly right that was a big part of it is we were speaking directly to an audience of one we were going right after him running ads on fox news in dc so that he alone would be watching it because we knew we could get under his skin nothing like that had ever been attempted before and it worked remarkably remarkably well and it kept the campaign off of its feet it kept the trump campaign off of its feet until biden could gather himself and raise some money and build an operation to actually defend himself so we don't talk enough about how important that phase of the campaign was, late spring, early summer, is if Trump had focused his fire on Biden, he would have destroyed him. There's no way he would have gotten back up off the map. Biden didn't have the money to respond. We provided that shield and we became the dominant fight with Donald Trump because we were going right at him and he could not not take the bait. And he did. I and mean, he was attacking us personally. We got his campaign manager fired. We were lighting him up every day, and uh, that alone—just those the tactics of that alone—had a demonstrable impact. There were a lot of tweets from administration and campaign officials in a public way saying thank you for for your efforts and for your work. But there were a lot of behind the scenes phone calls that were made to 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 different members saying we appreciated your work. I enjoyed uh, seeing what you guys had done. The Lincoln Project had no board of directors overseeing our work, and we had no candidates to respond to, and we had no major donor that we were responsive to. That had never happened before in American history. We were literally raising money from the quality of our work in very small increments from the American people. That was what was fueling it. And there were that's why we were able to say and do stuff that nobody had ever done before. I mean, half of our ads would never be approved by a board of directors or a candidate or a donor. It was just us being the best us that we could be. That also, by the way, led to some, I think, of, of the challenges that the organization had later on, as there was no oversight, right? We, it was just a bunch of pirates just doing what, what we do, and it was very effective uh, for the time being. And I, I never really believed it would be much of a sustainable organization long-term for a lot of reasons, one being that w- we really needed Trump to exist. Um, that doesn't mean it's not going to continue to do great work. I'm sure that they are doing great work. I, I'm obviously no longer involved with it. But, you know, I, I the idea that you can raise an extraordinary sum of money by leading your own fight as individual players in the American political arena without a billionaire backing you, without a politician, without a governing board that was distinct from the professionals themselves, that had never been done before. It was completely unique. And like I said, that's what allowed us to respond so quickly. There's no such thing in our industry as the killer ad anymore. You have to have tons of ads. You have to have continually good content because people will forget the best ad people will forget 48 hours later. You have to be very good every day through an entire election cycle. And that's what we did that was unique and that was different And it was done without paid reach on most of our viral um, advertising.
1: What what can you say about why you left?
0: The fight for democracy is very expansive. And I think we just had different visions of what that was going to look like. I, I am particularly interested in the Latino demographic, as you know. I'm also extremely interested in international work and international affairs. And so I look at Ukraine right now and what's happening and there's a good chance that I'll be heading out to Eastern Europe in the coming weeks because to me that's a very pivotal fight in what the framework for this next century is going to look like and I want to be there, to be involved, I want to see it. And that's how I want to spend my life. Every one of us had a unique and different approach to what they wanted to do. I think it just kind of for the most part it it, it had run its course as a group. There's still a role for it, they're still doing it, but what they're doing is not where I can bring my best work and my best area of expertise.
1: Tell me what else you're up to currently.
0: I'm working on a book, a book on the Latinization of America, as I call it, and how the Latino demographic will actually change our American political system over the next 20 years. It'll be a deep dive on what both parties have gotten wrong and what both parties are doing right. Again, that's kind of a unique perspective I think I can bring because I've done it on both sides. That's really, I think what my passion needs to be. I'm doing a lot more writing. I think you saw the New York Times editorial piece. I'm very interested in being engaged in this changing demography because it's going to have very significant impacts, good and bad, on our democracy here in this country. And I you know have thirty years of of work and experience thinking about it. And I'm going to be talking more about that. I do want to get more engaged and involved in international work because I think that we are witnessing something in Ukraine that's going to change the geopolitical balance of power for this century and the fight. This is the first real physical fight between authoritarians and and democracies. And God bless the people of Ukraine for, for fighting on the front for all of us because that is genuinely what they're doing. And I think it will be whoever wins this the next few weeks or months is going to really shape the way this century uh, unfolds. It could be a very dark, dark place or it could be a time of extraordinary aspiration. And my hope, of course, is for the latter. And I want to be involved in making sure that that's the case.
1: I saw somewhere that you have a podcast about the Latino vote. Is that right? I I do. In fact, uh, one of the
0: people, one of the real fascinating people that I met during the Lincoln Project campaign was a political operative by the name of Chuck Rocha. Chuck was Bernie Sanders's, did his campaign work. Um, Jeff Weaver was his campaign manager, but Chuck was a senior advisor and did all the Latino outreach and the Latino work. I called him actually in the campaign and said, Chuck, I'm seeing problems with the Hispanic vote in the Biden campaign. Are you seeing that too? And he said, I am seeing that too. So the fact that the two guys on both sides that have been doing this the longest were seeing the same problem told me something, and we struck up a friendship and and have have been talking ever since. And a couple of weeks ago, we decided to launch a podcast called The Latino Vote. It's been very well received. We've just got three episodes out right now, but a lot of national writers, reporters, and, and folks are covering it. It's really about two practitioners that get into the nuts and bolts of the vote in critical races, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, those key states. And we'll be talking about the impact of the vote in each of these races going into the midterms. And then we'll see how it goes from there. Chuck and I disagree on a lot of policy. We disagree on a lot of tactics and strategy, but we really admire each other's professionals. So the chemistry really, really works. And it's moderated by a a gentleman by the name of Jason Vialba, uh, the head of the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation, it's a great listen, and I don't say that um, you know just because I'm involved with it. I, I learned something from every episode from Chuck. I think he'd probably say the same about me. It's definitely worth worth um, picking up wherever you get your podcast. It's called the Latino Vote, and um, love to have you guys join us in the
1: conversation. I've had Chuck on my show. I've talked to him. He has a personality. Uh, strong. (laughs) He's colorful. (laughs) Yes. And definitely knowledgeable in that area. That is one of the segments of the vote that's most contested and is going to be one of the pivotal votes in 2024. If you, I mean, it sounds like some of your thoughts are out there, but in this context, what would you advise the next democratic presidential campaign to do with respect to that I'm assuming you will be on that side again if uh, the Republicans nominate Trump again or DeSantis or someone who. Yeah, if if Trump is, I definitely will
0: be involved in it. If it's somebody else, you know, I mean, we'll see how the campaigns evolve and what it is that they're trying to do. I find a lot of the Republicans um, running that will likely be running for president to be extraordinarily problematic but having said that, I believe Trump is a unique threat to, to democracy at this point in time. That doesn't mean they aren't all you know, working to undermine some of our institutions. They are, and that's dangerous. But none of them have the reach or capacity that Donald Trump has to effectively do it. And that's why there's no question in whatever capacity I would be involved in some efforts to beat Trump back. But my advice to Democrats simply is this. The first is, You really got to clear the decks of the consultants who were advising both Hillary and and Biden. The collapse of the Hispanic share of the Democratic vote, look, that can happen, but it demonstrates that whoever is telling you whatever it is they're telling you does not understand what is happening. And what is happening is basically this. The working class, the non-college educated working class in America, the complexion and the cultural Inclinations of the working class are changing. And the Democratic Party, as it becomes more of a college educated party, is losing touch with those voters. A lot of people still believe Democrats still believe that they are the party of the working class. The working class does not believe that. Whether you believe that or not, the working class does not believe that the Democratic Party is the party of the working class. And that's what's most important. Okay, And so you need people who understand the culture of blue-collar folks as well as reconsider a number of policy positions which have become orthodox in the Democratic Party because if you don't, you will continue to regionalize and isolate the party in a way that will be dangerous for the long-term prospects and health of the country and for the republic itself.
1: Who do you think are – significant Democratic consultants who get that and who, and maybe who don't? Well,
0: I think Carville gets it. I think hundred percent, James Carville gets it. Now, remember there was a whole cadre of folks that came of age during the DLC, the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, which is what Bill Clinton headed, right? Bill Clinton saw the same problem happen in 1984. They started the DLC. He was a Southern governor from Arkansas who was like, look, we can't be a party of wealthy white progressive elites, because that's not what America is. And he successfully steered the Democratic Party in a way and in a direction that was foundationally different than where it was going under the Reagan era. And in many ways, there's a lot of comparisons to what's happening now. The Republican criticisms on critical race theory and defunding the police and Latinx, these don't sound like real issues to the average Democratic voter, but to the average American, they're very tuned into this because they are keenly aware of this separation between the classes. And there is a resentment that has built up because of that. One class, the college-educated high-tech workers who have the luxury of dealing with social issues um, are are alienating, and that is the right word, are alienating this growing cadre of workers who are more worried about paying rent on Friday than they are about whether you call them Latinx or not. It's just, it's not that they're anti-Democrat, it's just they're not relatable anymore. And when you have a party who is saying, the environmentalists are trying to shut down your job, making $85,000 a year in the energy patch in, in the Rio Grande, or, you know, or is teaching your kids critical race theory instead of having your public school performing, um those are it works it, it shouldn't be dismissed as trickery or brainwashing it is a problem that is happening in a, a very distinct and separating america with two different cultural educational tribes and there is a resentment that is growing as the opportunities for one class continue to grow at exponential rates and and develops a reality completely distinct from anything else in the country, and another whose, whose industries are collapsing and they don't feel the same aspirational goals. And so the Democratic Party, if it wants to be competitive, is going to need to get back to its FDR roots. It really believes that it is, and that's the problem is they don't, they don't even understand that it's a problem yet, and it's probably going to take them a couple election cycles before
1: they figure it out. So are you just basically saying the working class is socially conservative and that is... Uh, a disconnect with a progressive elite?
0: No, it's more than that. That's half of it. The other half is that the working class is economically populist. And I wrote this in my piece in the New York Times. It's not that Latinos are leaving the Democratic Party. It's that the Democratic Party has left Latinos. What Latinos are telling us in polling about their priorities has not changed in 25, 30 years. In the entire adult time that I've been looking at it, it's not changing. What's changed is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. The Republican Party has become much more populist. It's America first. It's more focused on jobs that are native to the blue-collar, non-college-educated workforce. That's unique, by the way. The Republican Party that I joined was the free traders, the globalists, they call us now, capitalists. The Republican-based voter has no appetite for that anymore. They're like, look, protect my industry. Let's blame the Chinese, let's blame the Muslims, let's blame the Mexicans, let's blame everybody. Protect my industry, wave the flag, America first, and all of these people that are trying to change, you know, all of us into, you know, whatever it is on whatever gender issues that they're they're either making up or taking way out of context works. It worked in the 80s. We used to call them Reagan Democrats. Now they're Latino Democrats, but they're shifting just as decisively as the Reagan Democrat for the exact same reasons. This lesson has been learned before. It took Bill Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Council To come and say, we need to change the direction of the party, it needs to be more moderate. He got stronger on crime, he started to focus less on tax increases, he brought the Democratic Party back to the center, and for a long period of time in the post-World War II era, Democrats dominated presidential election cycles. And who was his political consultant? James Carville. It's the same dynamic that needs to happen now. It's just becoming much more difficult because the demography of the Democratic Party is becoming much more regionally isolated, and there are fewer and fewer voices that can actually stand up and bring that party back from
1: from where it's heading. In 2024, let's say Biden's up. Let's say Trump carries the nomination again, quite possible. If he runs, he's sort of still ahead in in their polls you talked about that fight for democracy with him on that side you makes me want to make sure he doesn't come back into power right um just because of who he is and where he fits into the world if if not just into this country that election is going to be so different than the 2020 election because you have an incumbent defending and subject to all of the troubles the pandemic the economy everything you know is it's switched, right? You 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 have those deficits. You won't have the same kind of Lincoln project, most likely. How do you think that's winnable in that circumstance? What is it gonna take between now and then to put together the governing and the campaign to make sure that we don't slide back into another four years of Trump?
0: Well, let me let me say this. Um, and this is not gonna make people feel very comfortable, but I'm a very big believer in data and trend lines, and I believe that there's demographic explanations for most of what's going on, um, despite all the media chatter and the campaigns that do go on. I do believe campaigns matter, but I believe that demographics matter as well. If the Republicans win the House and the Senate in the midterms, and I expect that they will, I think that portends very, very well for Joe Biden's reelection effort. I think, in fact, it's the the single best thing that could happen for the Democrats keeping the White House would be to lose the House and the Senate.
1: So that they have something to balance, that the electorate wants to balance that. And because of the things that they'll, the crazy things they'll do with power. Precisely.
0: Yeah, precisely. We live in an era that's defined by what's called negative partisanship. And negative partisanship is the idea that people are voting against things, not voting for things. And those are very different constructs, right? So if you're voting against the extremes, which is where those swing voters are at, you want an extreme element in government to contrast against. The best argument for Joe Biden will be the Republicans doing the crazy things that they're doing in the House and the Senate. Now, I'm not suggesting that's good for governance, but that's not what you asked and that's not my job right my job is to just take a look at the political environment and if the political environment has a Jim Jordan as speaker and Mitch McConnell as the leader in the Senate and Marjorie Taylor Greene has tried to impeach Joe Biden and you know they're looking they're investigating Hunter Biden's laptop and going back to Benghazi and you know undermining the war effort which they will then that, that bodes very well for Joe Biden's re-election efforts. So, so there's one. The other is um, I do believe Donald Trump is an extraordinarily large, significant, dangerous legal trouble. I think that there is every likelihood that he will cut a deal with everything that's going down to make sure that he's not ever capable of running for office again. I think that's a very likely possible. You think he'll
1: trade not running for not prison? Yeah, yeah,
0: and I think that's a very real scenario. Uh, if not, then he'll go to prison.
1: I'll I'll take either, but uh, we'll see. Yeah,
0: right. So I so I, I think I think that twenty twenty four will be very different for both of those reasons more than they will be different. Um, because of, of the lack of a Lincoln Project or, or something like that. I, I think there will probably be three or four different copycats of the Lincoln Project that are going to try to jump up and try to try to replicate the successes that we had. Will they be successful? I mean, I, I don't know. It'll depend on the dynamics of the race. What I do know is that what the Lincoln Project did was create a roadmap for independent actors to go out there and have a disproportionate impact in campaigns. And I do believe that that is the future of presidential campaigns. I also believe it's going to be the future of state and congressional campaigns as well. I think that's where campaigns are headed.
1: I I feel like there's a part of the party, the Democratic Party, the progressive populist side of it, the Sanders, the Sherrod Browns who... Uh, aren't always quite on the same page as the kind of foil that you're talking about that's not getting, say, Hispanic politics right or some other things. What's your view of how well that wing of the party would do if they were the standard bearers? Oh, wow. That's not a good question.
0: The Democratic Party is very different than the Republican Party at this moment in time for a couple reasons. The first is the Republican Party is an extremely monolithic party right now. It's really concentrating one demographic, which are white voters, but specifically white non-college educated evangelical voters are the dominant base of the Republican Party. The Democratic Party faces a very different conundrum. And that is that the moneyed interest, the donors are overwhelmingly white But the populist base is increasingly black and brown. And the tensions between those two groups, especially on economic issues, to a lesser extent but somewhat on cultural issues, are exacerbating. And the split, the ideological split in the Democratic Party is very real in the way that there is no ideological fight in the Republican Party because the Republican Party has lost its ideological moorings right? Classical conservatives like me, there's no place for people like me really in the Republican Party anymore. You have to be a nationalist populist to be a, a you know, right-wing Republican or to be a Republican today. On the left, you can have a Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, or you can have a Joe Biden. Those are very legitimate, healthy battles going on in the Democratic Party. There is an ideological difference. I don't know how sustainable that coalition is. What I do know is that, at least at this moment in time, the ascendant wing of the Democratic Party is that left. The average Democratic voter is moving further and further towards the left. In fact, if you looked at all the polling when it was Bernie versus Biden in the primary, most Democratic primary voters agreed with Bernie Sanders over Joe Biden on virtually every issue except for one, and that one was who can beat Donald Trump. So Democrats hated Donald Trump so much, they were willing to vote for a candidate they agreed with less because they thought he had the best chance of beating Donald Trump, and they were correct. So that's not sustainable, though. You're not going to have voters without uh, kind of of that contrast, without that Donald Trump out there. You're you're not going to have that coalition stick very long. So what does that mean in terms of governance? In many ways, the the Joe Biden Democrat is a lot like the, you know, Ronald Reagan Republican. There's a certain time span on how long those leaders of the party can hang on. As the party becomes younger and browner, um, it is becoming a more progressive populist party. That's the future of the Democratic Party, at least at this moment in time.
1: But but it's interesting because, you, you know, both your analysis of the Hispanic vote and what I've read about African-American vote is they are not necessarily culturally as, uh, like or economically. You, right. So might not that base pull the politicians to the middle?
0: I would hope so, but I was hoping so that that would be the case in California, and it hasn't proven to be the case for 20 years. There's a record number of Hispanic politicians in Sacramento in legislative office. We've got Alex Padilla in the Senate. That position has not moderated, even though the average Hispanic voter is much more moderate. So the question is, why? The answer to that is because there is political advantage for Hispanic and black politicians in power to leverage that leftward flank as opposed to building a coalition of moderates in the party.
1: Does that make sense? It does if if it's the primary that's driving who gets elected, et cetera. And so I think that that would be the answer to it. I want to ask you one question before. I, I, I'm presuming a lot on your time, and I, I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. But I, I want to ask you about the Republican Party because you are still identifying with that party, but it's a diseased party at the moment. It is enormously more so than anything you can say about the Democratic Party, in my view, right? And yeah, I, uh, I would agree. It is infected with a uh, lack of truth, like lack of being tethered to certain realities. It's infected by Trump. What is your view on the long-term of that party and obviously you care about it you it's important to our democracy with a two-party system for that to heal how can we fix this
0: well as i've said i'm not really in the business of fixing the republican party as much as i'm in the business of fumigating the republican party (laughs) i see that as my role right now
1: right now the republican party is moving the other direction than than as if a fumigator was being successful, right? They are ge- they are purging the fumigators, and they are getting increasingly bug-ridden.
0: Yeah, well they've tried to they've tried to they've tried to push me out of the party too. I'm so sure. look, I, I hear what you are saying, but let me here is the way I view all human institutions. And again, parties are just parties. Okay, there was there was a time when the Democratic Party was the party of slavery, right? Which was far worse than what the Republican Party is doing, in my estimation that changes. What creates that change is people of conscience requiring and demanding that the parties hold true to their foundations and to their principles. To me, the most consequential Republican in the history of our party was not Abraham Lincoln. It was Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass had a very tumultuous, uneasy relationship with his party. For this reason, he understood and believed and was committed to its founding principles and to the policy platforms for which it was purporting to advocate. It's why he became a Republican. The tension became when the human element got in and was willing to compromise or change away from and around those principles. He had a very antagonistic relationship with Abraham Lincoln during most of Abraham Lincoln's tenure as president. Not all of it, but most of it. And Frederick Douglass viewed himself as the voice and the conscience of the party to remain true to what it purported to be. Now, I'm not making a comparison of myself and Frederick Douglass by, by any estimation, <laughs> but 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 I can completely understand what he was trying to do is what he was saying is this institution has been corrupted. And that corruption doesn't just disease the party, it diseases the entire society. And unless we fix this instrument, which is required for democracy to work, the Democrats will go down too. We will all go down and that is what is happening. So there are plenty of people who believe, I think rightfully so, that we should prevent Republicans from taking power at this point in time, but that does not solve the problem. That does not solve the problem. In fact, in many ways, it exacerbates the problem. The problem is we need to reform and reconstitute a political party that is based off of the principles for which it was purportedly founded. And the Republican Party is nowhere near that, But once those voices leave, it is hopeless. And that hopelessness does not mean the Democrats win everything. It means the two-party system collapses, or worse, gets even more corrupted as a one-party state. So Democrats need a healthy Republican party far more than they know at this point in time. Our country needs an alternative party that is healthy and that is functional. And while most people have left, and I understand why, somebody has to hold up the mirror and say, this is not right. This is not who we are, and this is not what we should be aspiring to be. That is a lonely place. (laughs) And I'm also not optimistic about my prospects of fixing it in my lifetime, but it is a job that needs to be done.
1: I couldn't agree more. Is there a question I didn't ask you that you would love to answer?
0: I don't think so, man. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate your style. You're really, really good at this. So thanks
1: thanks for sharing some time. I appreciate the compliment. Anything else you want to say? All good. That was Mike Madrid. Mike is at grassrootslab.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.